last Sunday, if I would have stood up and said, does anybody know what day today is? Uh, I know at least uh, uh, about half of the congregation would have said, yes, it's Mother's Day. So I'd like to ask you today, does anybody know what Sunday this is? I think I heard it. It's Pentecost. Pentecost Sunday. Uh, the reason I say that, of course, is uh, um, although that's, that's not uh, a, a biblical holiday in any sense of the word, the church has uh, celebrated on uh, 50 days following uh, Easter, Pentecost Sunday. Now, that goes back to the book of Acts. And when we saw in Acts chapter 2, they were gathered in Jerusalem. And as they were gathered, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them, and they began speaking in the languages of the people that were there and hearing the gospel in their own language. That's what happened on Pentecost. And I know that sometimes... People say, oh, if we could just have another Pentecost, another pouring out in that way, that the the fire would rise up from the heads of those who speak. But we actually have something better. Because that Holy Spirit that was poured out in that way dwells within us. And so we celebrate the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And we have the completed Word of God where rather than uh, having to speak through languages, this new revelation that was uh, given on the day of Pentecost, rather we have the Word of God in the Bible and the power is there by God's Holy Spirit. So let's give our attention in Acts chapter 15. It says this. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. That means they had big dissension and a big debate. (laughs) Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders uh, about this question. So being sent on their way uh, by the church... They passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, uh, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, 
Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we've been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, will you in these moments as we handle this precious word that by your spirit you saw fit to speak and to preserve for us. Will you be our teacher? Will you cause that same spirit that moved in his people on the day of Pentecost to move among us to empower us, to teach us. We would plead for this and for clarity on this passage, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's take a look at the issue. Uh, first of all, the very first verse begins to uh, speak of this. And by the way, we're going to be in this same passage next week because uh, what we see here is uh, what we as Presbyterians base our form of government, our way of doing things, we base it upon, uh, partially upon this very passage. And uh, we see the, the great example of how, uh, how it worked here among the churches. But here's the issue. Uh, the first verse, some men came down from Judea, were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That last part is the issue. Let's start with that and understand that the big question could be stated this way, what must I do to be saved? That's the issue. Uh, now, circumcision is the presenting issue, if you will. So we need to at least understand where, where that came from. It was uh, introduced in the Old Testament. It signified incorporation into the people of Israel. And uh, in uh, being circumcised and receiving that sign, which, by the way, symbolized cleansing by way of removal. That's why 
we see uh, baptism as the New Testament parallel, symbolizing cleansing by way of removal. But here, uh, the, the issue in this transition period, so to speak, is that uh, you know, all of these Jews had been circumcised. They knew that was the sign of entrance into the covenant community. And so they were saying, well, you know, now Gentiles are coming into the church, into uh, the fellowship of God's people. And so some were teaching, well, they've got to they've do all the things that, that we have done. And what we need to understand is that it, it's bigger than just the, the limited act of circumcision. It was representing... Not only that, but all of uh, the Old Testament laws and all of the expansion of the laws, that's what they were teaching. Uh, uh, circumcision was the, just kind of the presenting issue that they were speaking of. Uh, so they would have said, you know, they've got to they've obey all the dietary laws, uh, the Jewish feasts, uh, the Pharisaic interpretations of the Ten Commandments, and so on. So you get the picture that that's what the, that's what the big argument was about. Now, in our day, circumcision isn't the issue. I can tell you that in my 30-plus years of ministry, I've been involved in a lot of debates at presbytery level, General Assembly level issues of, uh, in terms of theology and uh, sessions talking about things. I don't remember a single conversation about circumcision <laughs> in terms of, you know, saying we need to require that of uh, people or anything like that. It's, uh, it's just that's not what we see in our day. Now, the reason I, uh, we, we need to go back is we've got to understand how tied in, though, that was to who they were, for us to understand why it was such a big issue. So what do we see in, in our day? Well, look around in churches. There are, are some churches that would, uh, would probably say they are on the fundamentalist end of, of things, and they may say uh, that there are some issues that one really must do in order, they, they, they wouldn't say in all likelihood in order to be a Christian, but they would say in order to be an obedient Christian. And they might bring out some things like, well, all women have to wear dresses. And um, length of dresses. And what you can uh, do in recreation time, whether you can go to movies put out by Hollywood. Uh, it might be what you can watch on TV uh, for the men. It may be, and I'm, I'm telling you actual things that I've encountered in you know, with people that have 
come to churches that I've served from these kinds of churches. For men, it may be they can't wear shorts. Various things like that. It may be what you can or cannot drink. By the way, usually eating is fine. Whatever you want to eat. You can eat all, all you want, okay? But what you, what you drink is, uh, is often an issue in those areas. And you will find sometimes in those kinds of churches that there are numerous sermons that are on that under the, under the umbrella of this is the Christian life. Sadly, what people growing up under that may begin to believe is that the Christian life is defined by what I can't do and what I don't do. Now, some of you may have come from that kind of a background, but evangelicalism, we have our own things. We may say that in order to be on God's good side, now we don't use phrases like that, but we may say you got to read your Bible every day, you got to do family devotions, Uh, There are uh, certain things that you may or may not be permitted to do. You need to have quiet times every day. Now, I don't for a moment want to say that any of those things are bad. Nor would I even say that uh, in terms of on the fundamentalist end, that we shouldn't have standards of dress and modesty and those kinds of things. Every family needs to decide those in the light of the revealed Word of God. That's how we ought to decide. We should wrestle with it rather than just give in to whatever the the latest uh, thing the culture would tell us. So I don't want you to get me wrong there. Here's where these become a problem. Jerry Bridges, in one of his books, talks about the good day, bad day idea. And we can sometimes fall into this. Uh, He would say, you know, the good day is is the day that uh, uh, you get up in the morning and uh, you get up extra early like you'd been planning to do, and you read your Bible and you spend some time in prayer, and then it just seems like from that moment on, that everything falls in line for that day. That's the good day. And you look back and you say, well, the way I started my day, of course it's going to be a a good day, and so I receive God's favor because of that. And then he would describe the bad day is, well, you meant to get up early, but you didn't quite get up as early as you meant to, and so... You didn't get your Bible reading done. You thought, maybe I'll do that tonight and so on. And it seems like from that moment on, nothing goes right during the day. And so you can only conclude, well, I, you know, of course I wouldn't receive God's favor because I didn't begin it by reading the Bible. Now, once again, you will never hear me tell you not to read the Bible That's not the issue. And in fact, I would recommend you starting your day that way. But don't ever make the mistake 
that if I read my Bible, God will favor me, and if I don't read it, he won't favor me, or he will love me more if I read my Bible, and so I, if I read it more, he will love me even more. He loves you more than you can ever know. And it will not increase by your obedience. The great joy of that, you know, because some of you may say, oh, well, what's, what's my motive? <laughs> well, the great joy of that is he will not love you less because of disobedience. Because what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient. He loves you infinitely. And he has poured out that love upon his children, those who are trusting in Christ alone. Now, look at the centrality of this issue. Uh, verse 2, it says, and after Paul and Barnabas had, there's that phrase, no small dissension and debate with them, uh, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, it, you know, here they have this argument, and then they say, okay, well, let's, let's settle this. Let's go up to Jerusalem, gather others together, and, and discuss it. Now, why, why did they argue over it? I had a professor in uh, uh, seminary that said, you know, I've heard some say I never argue over politics or religion. He said, my thinking is uh, there's nothing else worth arguing over, <laughs> you know, and maybe there's some truth to that. Well, here, here they, they have this. Why do they feel like they've got to take it, it uh, further and get it settled? Well, listen to some of the other things that uh, Paul says. Philippians 3, verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, he's talking about the, not necessarily the same people, but the people who teach uh, that you've still got to be circumcised. That's what the mutilating the flesh is. Verse uh, 3 in Philippians 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then he says over in, in Galatians, remember he had already called them foolish, you foolish Galatians. He says this in, in uh, the first chapter, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. See, that's how serious it is to him. He's not saying, well, we have this little minor disagreement, you know, let's hash it out and we'll all be fine. He's saying, you know, those, those who teach that, they're teaching a different gospel. Um, he says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now catch this. This is how passionate he is about it. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel Contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Do you realize what he's saying here? What he's saying is if somebody comes to you and preaches a different gospel, preaches that 
there are works involved in your salvation, whether it's circumcision or something else. If somebody comes and preaches that to you, let them go to hell. Now, he wasn't cussing. He was cursing. He was saying, you know, may they go to the place because here's why. Because that kind of preaching, that different gospel, is in danger of leading people astray and in danger of sending others to hell. That's how serious this is. The argument was over what it means to be a Christian. That's why there was so much passion. So what's the key to the gospel? You know, back in the Reformation, they, they had, uh, you know, their definition of really the gospel were in the, the five solas, sometimes called. Several years ago, I was going to, uh, on anniversary Sunday, I, I preached on the first sola, I, I used uh, Soli Deo Gloria as the, the first one. And I said, I'm going to do this for the you know, next five years. And then we built a little building and had a dedication, things like that. So I haven't gotten back to that series on Anniversary Sunday yet. But here are the, the solas. Of course, Soli Deo Gloria, it's for God's glory alone. But listen to this and understand this represents the gospel. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is the standard. Solo Christo, solo Christo, by Christ's work alone, we are saved. So there's Scripture, Christ, sola gratia, salvation's by God's grace alone. And then sola fide, justification by faith alone. Now here's, here's the scriptural summary, I think. And that would be Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Gracia, fide. And this not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. Not by works, lest any man should boast. Not your own doing. Not someone else's doing to you, like circumcision. In other words, you're not saved by anything you can do or anyone else can do to you. It's not because you're a member of a church. That's not what salvation is. You're not saved because you're a Sunday school teacher or an officer or any other thing that you can do. It's about what Christ has done. That's what salvation is. Grace is getting what we don't deserve and didn't and couldn't earn. You who've been through the inquirer's class, I give you that little acrostic, G-R-A-C-E. Listen closely because I'm going to have you say it with me. (laughs) God's riches at Christ's expense. Say that with me. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a good way to remember We receive His riches. We receive eternal life, not at our expense, but only what He did on the cross, His finished work 
on the cross? And that's the answer. Down in verse 11. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Jesus paid for our salvation. That he's the instrument through the grace of the Lord Jesus, the condition just as they will, or just as they are. In other words, it's unconditional. It's the same for everyone. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying... Think back, you know, realize what you're doing. If you're saying they need to be circumcised, they need to do all the the feasts and all of the laws of the Pharisees and all those things if they're going to be saved. And he's saying, why are you trying to put that on them? We, We haven't been able to bear that. He calls it a yoke, you know, something that's on us, that's a burden. That's a yoke. That body of teaching is a yoke. And he says, we couldn't bear it, neither could our forefathers. Why are you trying to put it on them? We can't and we must not impose anything on anyone that the apostles refuse to. That's why when when we do an inquirer's class, which for you visitors, that's what people go through before they join the church. And in the inquirer's class, I introduce people to our doctrines. Now, I do it very quickly. They get a workbook and, and all of those things, and they get to see our doctrines and that type of thing. But in terms of then becoming a member, we don't examine them in the doctrines of our church. There's one, one way to join this church and that is trusting in Christ alone for eternal life. We want them to to know what kinds of doctrines we believe, and we don't want to hide anything. But we believe that the entrance into St. Andrew's should be as broad and as narrow as the entrance into heaven. And it's trusting in Christ alone. We will not put a yoke upon people in order to try to make them members here. In terms of application, we see see this this grace that he talks about here. And again, we're going to go into this passage more next week in terms of, of process. If you're in Christ, if you're trusting in Christ alone for eternal life, then you've received grace. And it's now your responsibility to exhibit grace towards others. If you've received grace, you need to show grace towards others. Being accepting of others, forgiving others, giving up grudges towards others, How can you hold a grudge against someone when God the Father will not hold it against you 
if you're trusting in Christ alone. So that's what changes our behavior. It's not a matter of having a list of rules. It's responding to what He has done for us. So it's exhibiting grace towards others. But that can be hard. And I'm convinced one of the reasons that is sometimes hard is because we minimize the amount of grace it took for us to be saved. We forget. We lose the amazement of what it took for us to be called children of the living God. Let me take you to the Boston Marathon. April 15th of this year. You decide to take your little eight-year-old boy to see this historic event. And so you work your way in and you get to a place where you can see the finish line. It's been a great day, a wonderful day. Little did you know it would be your last day with your eight-year-old. You know what happened. In front of your eight-year-old, the bomb goes off, and he perishes. A manhunt takes place to try to find the bomber. He's arrested. Zokar Tsarniev. He's arrested. Now you have a choice, theoretically. If you use every means in your power to somehow get to Zokar Tsarnyov and kill him, that would be vengeance. If, however, you sit back and let the legal authorities take over, find him guilty, and execute him, after a trial, that's justice. But if you should plead for the pardon of Tsokar, forgive him completely, invite him into your home, and adopt him as your own son, that's grace. Now you see why it's so hard to grasp. Even in me putting that together and thinking through that, how hard that is to conceive. In fact, it's impossible. But what it is is amazing. 
Who of us could readily do that with joy? And yet God the Father takes the guilty, unbelieving sinner who says, I am guilty, I am despicable, I am hopeless, and I am helpless, and there is no reason I should be your child. And he says, you, you will be my child. And he adopts us into his family. That's what grace is. That's what's at stake. And the more we grasp that, the more we'll be amazed by it and the more we will be compelled to extend it to others. Let's bow together. Lord, I can't even conceive of doing that which I have just spoken of. I just simply cannot. But rather than us giving up with feelings like that, will you cause that to drive us to worship you and to be amazed by your grace again and to realize that that guilty one is us. And that's what it took for us to be adopted into your family. We thank you. We praise you. Will you help us to respond to you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.